right. Um, well, in anticipation of uh, making it to Micah tonight, we're, we're uh, going to be there, hopefully, um, unless there are more questions that we can deal with, and if, if, if so, that's fine. If not, we're going to move on to Micah. So I'm willing to entertain questions if there are any. All right, well, just know that uh, if you do have questions as they pop up, they may be a little off. I think some people had already, some people have already asked me questions, which is great. Offline, you can do that. Uh, feel free to grab me anytime or email me or phone call or whatever, and we can uh, hash it out. So um, we're going to move on then, and we're going to actually be moving back. Uh, hey, Robert, will you grab both of those doors back there? Uh, ESL is, is competing with me. Um, uh, <laughs> um, so we're going to be moving on to the, or really moving back, as it were, to what we were doing originally. So just to kind of give you a, an idea of where we're, what the next several months looks like for us on Wednesday night. Obviously, there's going to be holidays and there's going to be things like that that kind of, you know, change our schedule here and there a little bit, but uh, and member meetings and things like that. But for the most part, um, we were going through the Old Testament and where we had left off before we went into Church Defined, which was the series before Salvation Divine, was a study through the timeline of the Old Testament up until the exile of the children of Israel into Babylon, which is right at the end of 1 Kings. And we sort of ended there. But the, the, really the goal is to form in our minds what the timeline of the Old Testament really is, and help us to put all of the Bible into its cultural context. Because it's helpful if you understand what's going on in the background to understand the meaning of the text that's in front of you. It's paramount to understanding the Bible. You, you cannot do it um, if you don't understand what's going on. How many of you have sat down to read the prophets, as an example, in the Old Testament? not knowing anything of the background, and just sat down to read one of the prophets devotionally, and you get things like, I will consume you like fire, and, you know, and then you walk away from it going, praise God, I guess. I don't know how I'm supposed to apply that to me today, but apparently that's what I needed. Well, the, the background of what's going on and the context of all of that is helpful to understand before actually even reading those things because otherwise they won't make any sense at all. And so we put all the kings and things like that kind of in their place. We tried to. And now what I want to go back and do is take all these prophets and kind of put them on this little timeline in history. So hopefully this will aid you in being able to just even just read your Bible, read the Old Testament. But then what, we, what I want to do after that, after we get through that, so that'll, my guess is that will probably take us into maybe March or April or so, given the holidays and things like that. And then after that, I want to go into a time period. We're going to briefly leave our Bibles because we're going to go into a time period between the Old Testament and the New Testament what happened in those 400 years between Malachi ending and Matthew beginning? What, what, is that, what was that period? What happened in there, which is about 400 or plus years? 
and, uh, and spell that out, give a little Jewish history. I don't think that's going to take too many weeks. But then help set up the background for the New Testament, which might help make some sense as to the cultural situation Jesus walks into, where you've got Sadducees and Pharisees that we don't even really see in the Old Testament, but that are all of a sudden there in the New Testament. Where'd they come from? And who are these people? And it might give us some insight into some of the things that are said in the Gospels that you kind of go, oh, that's why that's a big deal. All right. So then after doing that, then the hope is to go into the epistles and probably go through them book by book, maybe loosely, and set them up as, in terms of why they're organized the way they are, the canon of the Bible and things like that, before we eventually get to the end times, which is no doubt going to be incredibly combustible. So uh, you'll want to be there for that. It's going to happen sometime maybe 10 years from now. So um, just note, note it down. And, uh, and there we are. So as, a, as I thought by way of review that I might, I, I'm going to leave this timeline on the packet for uh, a little while now and, so that you can kind of have that um, and may add some things to it on the way or, or you know, uh, take some things out and put some different things up there uh, from time to time. But um, to give you just sort of a, a reference guide to some big major moments in Jewish history. I'm not going to talk about all of these tonight, but just by way of review, I want you to key in on a few really important dates in particular. Um, so there was, um, Solomon comes onto the scene in 971. So where, where we are on Sunday morning, I'm going through 1 Samuel on Sunday morning, and where we are right now at the coronation of Saul is somewhere around 1051 B.C., all right? So 1051 B.C. is pretty close to the year Saul takes the throne. He's going to reign for 40 years on the throne, which is going to take us to 1011 B.C., where David actually takes the throne. Not where David is anointed, but where David takes the throne. 1011 B.C., so you see that on your timeline up there. And then Solomon, and so David, by the end of his tenure, he's really demonstrating an interest. He, he expresses as much that he wants to build a temple for God. At the end of the book of 2 Samuel, uh, David has purchased the site where the temple would be born, would be, would be, born, would be built. And, and so Solomon comes onto the scene, and there's this promise that, that God makes to David that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to raise up a son after you, I'm going to establish his throne forever, and there's you know, a lot of promise there in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and where, where God makes this promise to David, it's called the Davidic Covenant, and it, and it, it seems like, hey, that promised uh, snake crusher from Genesis 3 is coming, and he's going to be here in the person of David's son. And so Solomon is born and uh, demonstrates some promise. He takes the throne in 971, and we're talking within five years. Look at that. Within five years, 966, Solomon is building the temple of God. And not only does he build the temple of God, but he uh, decorates it like the Garden of Eden. And so it, it looks as though they're the first five years of Solomon's reign that and this guy is the promised one. This is the guy whose throne will be established forever. And, but, but he actually ends up marrying tons of women. 
and, and making all kinds of alliances and doing all kinds of terrible things. And by the end of his life, he is way out there, all right? And, or who knows what the real end of his life was like in, in terms of like his faith, but it, it, it looks pretty bad. So, uh, but the point is, by the end of Solomon's reign, the, the nation of Israel, far from being led back into the Garden of Eden, is divided. And they're split within, amongst the tribes. You've got two of them that hang on to the southern kingdom, and two and ten that take the northern kingdom. And um, what we, we need to understand, just these are just highlights, remember, that the north, which became known as Israel, in some places you'll hear it called Samaria, uh, you'll hear it referred to as a number of different names, Ephraim, sometimes it's named Ephraim, but anyway, the, the northern kingdom is notoriously wicked and is also seen as the illegitimate kingdom. Because the northern kingdom doesn't, the king that's on their throne is not from the Davidic line. The king that's on the throne in the north is, well, the line changes a lot, okay? But the point is it, it'll go for one guy and it'll hang on there for a couple of generations and then he'll get super wicked and God will overthrow him and put in a new one and, and it'll be, a, the line changes. But they're all wicked. They, I mean, virtually every single one of them, none of them are righteous. And they, they, and they don't have the Davidic king. In the south, they tend to be, which is just Judah and Benjamin, those are the only two tribes there in the south that hang on to the southern kingdom, they tend to be considered the authentic kingdom, and they oscillate. Some kings you get in, like Josiah and a couple others, are, hey, they're pretty good, or eh, kind of a mixed report, overall pretty good, but they didn't do some things proper. And then before long, they just fall off into complete wickedness. All right, so, and, and there's, there's times even where they look exactly like the north, and sometimes they even name the king in the south the same name as the king in the north. So it just kind of shows you, it gets really confusing and things like that, but that's the point. And so these two kingdoms are treated a little bit differently by God. And, and they're judged a little bit differently. Prophets, entire prophets, are sent to the north, some of them are sent to the south, and some of them are sent to both, and things like that. And so what's told to the northern kingdom is you're going to be judged for your idolatry. And you're still part of the people of God, even if you are an illegitimate kingdom. And you're going to be judged for your idolatry. And the way you're going to be judged is you're going to be hauled off into exile. This is actually prophesied in Deuteronomy that if you leave the Lord you're going to be hauled off into exile. You're going to be kicked out of the land. Okay? So the northern kingdom uh, you know, gets basically punished and told that they're going to get punished. And in 722 B.C., the northern kingdom, those ten tribes, are ransacked by the kingdom of Assyria. And Assyria hauls them off into captivity in Assyria. All right? In 722. Well, then, not a hundred years, or a little bit over a hundred years later, the south is told the same thing that happened in the north is going to happen to you because of your idolatry. And so in, in, in when the invasion happens in the southern kingdoms, remember Judah and Benjamin, when the, the, the invasion happens there, this time it happens by the Babylonians. The Babylonians come in and they don't do it all at once. They do it, first time they come in is 605, then they come in again in 597, then they come in again in 586, 
And finally, in 586, they haul off what remains of the southern kingdom into Babylon into captivity. So you've got the people of God all taken out of the promised land, hauled off into captivity in, in, in basically separate nations, and it's all judgment for uh, what they've done and uh, all of those things. So, when it comes to our thinking about the prophets, it's really important that we understand that timeline before we even start to read whatever prophet we're going into. Because if you don't wrap your mind around the fact that this is happening to these nations and this is what's being warned about, then the warnings themselves make absolutely no sense. You start reading about locusts and all this kind of stuff and you're like, what is going on? So we have to keep in mind that the most important thing we can do as readers of the Bible, particularly when it comes to the minor prophets, is to place the prophet in his historical setting. We have to place him in his historical setting. That means, where did he occur? On what timeline did he occur? I want you to, in your packet, after you write that down, go to the back page, page, page 6 of 7. Um, on page 6, we have here the prophets so far that we've covered, including the one that we're going to cover tonight, Micah. And you can see where they prophesied, whether they prophesied in the south or the north, to the northern kingdom or to the southern kingdom, and then which kingdom they, uh, which king they preached under, they prophesied under. Now, there's a couple of them that are going to be a little different, like Obadiah, he didn't go to either the north or the south, he went to Edom. Okay, so I've got that in parentheses up there, you can see him up there in uh, 853-ish, around that time. And then, of course, Jonah went to Assyria, and, uh, and we'll, I'll be sure to uh, kind of put those down as we go. But as we go, we're going to kind of put those prophets where they are, who they're preaching to, and, what the, and that'll help us to understand the background of what they're preaching about. Incidentally, if you also grab maybe a, a, a Bible that has an introductory paragraph before the, the book, the ESV has a really good one. I think it may be the ESV study Bible, but I think you can get it in just a regular ESV Bible too. It'll have a little paragraph right before the prophet and will tell you what we basically know about the year they prophesied, who they're prophesying to, and what in general that prophecy was about. Those are helpful sometimes, descriptions of what's going on um, that can just sort of help us to understand. But really, when we go to read especially one of the prophets, we really want to figure out which time period one, this prophet fell in, and it's usually one of three time periods. Okay, the first would be pre-exilic, the second would be exilic, the third would be post-exilic. So, how does this prophet relate to the exile? That's what we're asking. How does this prophet relate to the exile? Is this prophet warning that the exile is coming? Are they prophesying during a time when the people are already in exile? That would be an exilic prophet. Or a post-exilic prophet would be a prophet that's writing after everybody's done with exile and already back into the promised land and settled into the land, right? Or maybe they're somewhere uh, in, in different places. So th that helps for the most part, for 98% of the prophets. 
If you can nail that down, it helps to understand, okay, he's warning Judah, he's a prophet to Judah, and he's warning Judah about the fact that they're about to go into exile. Okay, that's helpful to know before you read the, 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 uh, the prophecy, all right? Then there's a couple of prophets that are sort of weird, and they fall into a different category. Someone like, let's say, for instance, Isaiah, who kind of spans all three. He's sort of pre-exilic in that he tells you right, ahead, right, right away, you can even see, I think I've put him on our timeline back here, uh, Isaiah is up there, way up there. Uzziah, all right? He's way up there, and he's prophet in the south, and he's prophesying during the time of Uzziah, and he goes all the way through Hezekiah. Okay, that's Isaiah 1 to 39. But then once you get into Isaiah 40, and all the way to the end of the book, he's talking about, basically, when Jesus comes, all right? He's talking about when they're already done with exile, and the way he even gives his prophecy from 40 all the way to the end is like they're already done with exile. So, and, and really, he's, he's sort of prophesying about when that's going to happen and what that's going to look like, and he really quickly gets into some Jesus stuff um, pretty quickly. But um, So there's some that sort of break the mold a little bit, and it's mostly those bigger prophets a little bit, but, but for the most part, they all fall into one of those categories. And then, of course, there's, in addition to Isaiah, there are prophets that don't prophesy to either the north or the south. They go to a different country altogether, and those are normally marked out in the text. You can kind of see who they're prophesying to. Um, but it's helpful to put things in those categories in order to understand. But the reason that this helps, especially as students of God's Word, is because it informs us of the context in which the words of the prophet occur. And it then helps us to know to whom the prophet is speaking and what the expected fulfillment of this prophecy will be. So the, I, I, we try to do this as much as possible. And, and this is... It, it, hopefully, if you hear me preach 100% of the time, this is, this is what I'll do, especially if we're in the Old Testament. First, we want to understand what is being said in the text. Just the words. I mean, just like, maybe there's a word that stands out that you don't even know what that means. You've got to look it up, okay? But for the most part, we want to understand what the words are that are being said. Then, we want to understand the context that those words were spoken in to help make sense of the things that are going on at the time. So that it doesn't just look like the prophet is just saying these random words about locusts, but that they actually have a connection to, to a reality on the ground where the people that are hearing this prophet speak are not just thinking this is a crazy man, but actually going, oh, wow, that, that makes a lot of sense to us and help ground those in a reality that the prophet spoke in. But then after that, what we want to do is go, okay, but... How does this then actually connect to us in a New Testament context who know that Christ has come to fulfill all of this? So we have to understand, how does this actually help us to understand the gospel better and what Jesus accomplished? Then we can apply it to us. But unless you actually go through those events, you're going to be left on your couch reading about locusts closing the Bible, getting up and going, I'm not sure how that benefited me today, but apparently that's what I needed, and then just walk off, right? So that's not what we want. We want to see how this actually, all of it, actually does touch us in a New Testament context. And it's very hard to do, but it's important. As an example of that, here's a great one, all right? Jeremiah 29, 11. How many of you got this on your wall at home, you know? 
we read this one, all right? And this is a great one. Uh, listen to the promise that's made, all right? You get this one, just picture yourself, you know, Monday morning, open your Bible, you got a tw- this is your reading for today, and you read Jeremiah 29, 11. Listen to this. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Amen, amen. Mm, Devotional was really good this morning because I read that and I went, God knows the plans he has for me. Plans not for evil, but for good, for a purpose. But your reading wasn't just Jeremiah 29, 11 to 13. It was 14 and following also. And then you read verse 14 Maybe it gets a little less close to home. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back from the place from which I sent you into exile. Okay, well, that's a little less me, right? Because you have said the Lord has raised up prophets for us in Babylon, thus says the Lord concerning the king who sits on the throne of David and concerning all the people who dwell in this city, your kinsmen who did not go out with you into exile. Okay, a little less me. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I am sending on them sword, famine, and pestilence, and I will make them like vile figs that are so rotten they cannot be eaten. Okay, I'm less devotionally charged now, right? I will pursue them with the sword, with sword, famine, and and pestilence, and I will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth, to be a curse, a terror, a hissing, and a reproach among all the nations where I have driven them, because they did not pay attention to my words, declared the Lord, that I persistently sent to you by my servants, the prophets, but you would not listen, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, all you exiles, whom I sent away from Jerusalem to Babylon. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning Ahab, the son of Kaliah, and Zedekiah, the son of Messiah, who are prophesying a lie to you in my name. Behold, I will deliver them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall strike them down before your eyes. Because of them, this curse shall be used by all the exiles from Judah to Babylon. The Lord make you Zedekiah and Ahab, whom the king of Babylon roasted in the fire, because they have done an outrageous thing in Israel. They have committed adultery with their neighbors, wives, and they have spoken in my name lying words that I did not command them. I am the one who knows, and I am witness, declares the Lord. You still amening and amening. Well, quickly you start to ask, doesn't this apply to me? And if so, how? Well, I can tell you this. He's certainly not talking to you right there. He's talking to a group of people, a very specific group of people. And that specific group of people, he has a a keen intention on speaking to. And he wants to tell them something. Namely, I'm going to send you into Babylon, and I'm going to kill you. Uh Uh-oh. Well, that's a little troubling, right? I'm going to send you into Babylon, and I'm going to kill you there. Come back to 2911. This is what he 
precedes that with. But. It's a huge but. In fact, he precedes the warning of judgment with the but. His but is, I know the plans I have for you, not for evil, but for good. Who is that spoken to? It's spoken to a group of exiles who are about to go into Babylon and who are going to assume that when they're there, God has intended to do evil to us. God has left us, and he's going to kill us. What use do we have for God anymore? And God's point is to say, oh yes, I meant to send you to Babylon. And yes, I'm going to kill a lot of you out there. But I do know the plans that I have for you. Plans not for evil, not to harm you, but for good. All right, now what is that good that he intends to do to them? Believe it or not, it's not just to bring them back into the promised land. It's actually to give them a future and a hope. It's actually to give them a king again. And it's not just to give them a king, but to give them a new heart. That's the plan that he has for them. And if you keep reading on in Isaiah, he eventually gets there. Plan to give you a new heart. So we start to then see, if we understand first the cultural context this is spoken into, then we begin to understand what he's saying to them and what his promises really are. But it's then, and our hope is, that we can actually apply them to our own lives and say, how does that promise of restoration actually then apply to us? And I think what we in the end are going to see is that the promise of future and hope is not something merely that we look forward to. The promise of future and hope that he's giving to the children of Israel who are going into Babylon and are then going to be brought out is to give them a king who's going to die for their sins. So for you on the couch, you're not just looking forward to the day Jesus returns, you're looking back to the time he came to begin with. And now you're saying, praise the Lord, his promise in Jeremiah 29, 11 was fulfilled in Christ. You see? Get it? All right. So now we read Micah 1, Micah uh, verse 1. And we see the word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria, that's the northern kingdom, and Jerusalem, that's the capital city of Judah, southern kingdom. So he's kind of preaching to both. But he's seeing this, so we've, we've set it in its context. And you can see where he falls in the context on the back. But he's amongst those kings. And if you look, so, he, he, so if we got Micah here, just, just, take, a, just as a, take a gander at this little timeline here. Micah is situated there at the beginning of Jotham's reign. How many kings do we have of Judah left to get to? We got a whole bunch, all right? How many kings of the northern kingdom do we have left to get to? Not, not a lot. So when Micah comes onto the scene, he prophesies just before the collapse of the northern kingdom. In fact, just roughly 20 years before the collapse of the northern kingdom. This is a, in other words, this is the last warning to the northern kingdom. But what does this say to the southern kingdom? who still has a long way to go, but you know they're headed off into exile. God sends a prophet to come in as a last warning to Israel, the northern kingdom, 
and a pre-warning to the southern kingdom. Hey, listen, you think it's bad in the north, just wait, all right? So we kind of understand him, let's understand him in his, in his context. All right, so the superscription of the book of Micah situates, sorry, let me get there on the slides. The superscription of the book of Micah situates its oracles during the reigns of three Judean kings, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Um, all right. So Micah's earliest oracles, his earliest prophecies, precede 722, and we know this because he prophesies the fall of the northern kingdom, which he, is, he basically says is an expression of God's wrath upon, uh, upon Israel's royal house. Look at Micah 1, 6, and 7. So when you see Samaria in your readings, you just kind of, if you see Ephraim as well, uh, Samaria, Ephraim, Israel, uh, especially anything after that division of kingdoms in 931, then you know this is to the northern kingdom. But listen to what he says in 6, and maybe you can kind of get the sense of this prophet. Therefore, I will make Samaria, that's the northern kingdom, a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards. And I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. What is he talking about there? Not the temple, but basically anything they've built right? Anything they built is going to be torn down. And we know that that's going to happen in just 20 years. Assyria is going to march in and do that, right? We're keeping track of our timeline. All right. All her carved images, carved images. Does that sound good? What, what does that mean? Car- uh, idols, right? So what do we automatically know that he's judging them for? Their idolatry, right? I'm going to tear down all your carved images, shall be beaten into pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire, and all her idols I will lay waste. For from, uh, for from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. That's a poetic expression of ugh, bad. All right. It's going to be ugly. All right. So he's prophesying, you know, before 722, because if you're just an just open-eyed observer, he's prophesying to Samaria of what's going to happen, so that's before 722. We know that automatically. All right. So in the period just before these years, Israel and Judah had risen to heights of economic affluence. They were rich. They had such prosperity, especially under Solomon, but then even afterwards, they were a kingdom that was blessed by the Lord. They were doing great and wonderful things and had all of this economic affluence and everything was going incredibly well unless you measure their health in spiritual terms. You see, Israel looked great. Israel and Judah, for that matter, looked great in terms of their balance sheet. All the bean counters said, we're doing fantastic. Everything was a check. But when you actually turn to the things the Lord cared about, their spiritual matters, 
They were bankrupt and they were pursuing all kinds of spiritual decadence. Um, under the able leadership of Jeroboam II of Israel and Uzziah, king of Judah, the territories of both kingdoms became almost as extensive as they were during the reign of Solomon. They were conquering people. They were teaming up together. They were doing all kinds of terrible, wonderful things for the kingdom itself and for the balance sheet. But for spiritual depravity, it was abysmal. And so, while Israel appeared to be strong externally... An internal decay was sapping their strength and threatening to destroy the social fabric of these two kingdoms. So here is, this is a main problem you're going to see time and again in the prophets. Is the prophets are going to come in and preach against injustice. Now, let me say one thing about that real quick. The political climate we're talking about in the Old Testament is not America 2022, all right? Okay? The reason I say that is because when you hear the word justice, any preacher preaching on justice gets called woke. Yes? All right? They get called woke, all right? Prophets preached about justice all the time. What's better is to understand what they were preaching about, understand the context that they were preaching it in, so that then you can take God's definition of justice in the prophets and apply it to the culture around you. So that you, when you see injustice, you recognize it. Hey, that's what Amos preached about. That's what Micah preached about. That's what all of these prophets preached about. Believe it or not, there are injustices that do go on even in this country. All the time. Some of them are stated and you see them and it's very obvious. Some, of, some not injustices are railed about and they're actually not injustices at all, right? But it's all kind of lumped in to the idea of justice. And then you got somebody over there who takes one of the prophets, some random verse, and then just sticks it on some cultural situation. And it just makes you mad, right? Well, then it makes a preacher's you know, dilemma really difficult because they're preaching Amos and they're talking about justice and they're applying it to specific cultural situations. But you've got all this anger and animosity and anxiety about all the times you hear justice being brought up. And so... Then the preacher's woke. All right, so I just wanted to make that disclaimer here before we start talking about what's actually going on here in the book of Micah and throughout many of the prophets. You're going to see this a lot because it was a huge problem. There is this wealthy class that's becoming richer, and the way they're becoming richer is at the expense of the poor. They're actually taking the property of the poor and literally taking it out from under them, and then they're owning it, and then they're making money off of it, planting their own vineyards or whatever. Um, and, and many things more than this, taking wives, taking children, taking all kinds of things that they're doing, it's on the backs of the poor that they're doing it, all right? So it's helpful when you look around at the cultural situations, when you see things like that happening, when there is a rich 
person who has the advantage, who is taking advantage specifically of the poor and making his or her money on the back of the poor, that is specifically what is called out against the nations of Israel and Judah. Okay? All right. And they will be held to account for those things. And you can call those things out. But as an example, here's what Micah says. Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Woe to them who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. You see that? I mean, that's about as plainly stated as a prophet will ever get for you. Is right there. This is what they're doing. They're taking people's property and taking their wealth or their, their, their personal property. They're taking it. And they're making money off of it for themselves. And they're destroying a person's future or ability to provide for his, fa- his or her his family. Um, so you can sense this is a particular kind of evil, right? Again, the balance sheet checks. You take a man's property and you sell it, hey, your balance sheet got a big boost, right? But spiritually, they are corrupt to the hilt, all right? But there's another problem. In the midst of this going on in the social fabric of Micah, the prophet paid special attention to the corrupt rulers and priests and the false prophets who cried peace when there was none. So this is another big problem that's going on. Here's a king taking somebody's wealth. And you know what? The king, he's, he, this is what would be his answer on Oprah, right? He would say, I wouldn't call myself a Christian, but I am spiritual, right? That's the kings of, of the north and south, all right? That, that's how they would answer that question. I'm not, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual, all right? And what they mean by spiritual is they consulted prophets, but frequently they gathered around them prophets that told them what they really liked to hear. So, you know, tickle my ears, tell me what I really like to hear. I don't like that Micah guy, literally is said in 2 Kings, I don't like that Micah guy because he never tells me what I want to hear. All right? And when they brought him around, he gave him a sarcastic report. Oh, no, everything's fine. Yeah, you're fine. God's totally not going to judge you for killing all these people. Nah. And he's like, see what I mean? This guy can't deal with it. All right. So here's Micah. This is what he says in Micah 2, 6. Do not preach. Thus they preach. So he's quoting the false prophets. Do not preach. Thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Micah 3, 5. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. You benefit me, things are great. You don't, I'll kill you. So, Micah is preaching against these false prophets who are saying in the midst of all of this utter depravity, Everything's fine. God's not mad at you. Why would a loving God... You heard this? Oh boy. So Jerusalem also came under 
prophetic word of judgment because its king, which is probably Ahaz, had led Judah into equally grievous sin. Israel and Judah will eventually fall, but so will their Assyrian nemesis, says the prophet. So let, let's pay attention to Micah 5, 5 to 6. He says, And he shall be their peace when the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. So he's talking to Judah now, and he's saying... The Assyrians are going to ransack the north, but you're not going to be ransacked by the Assyrians. <laughs> Little comfort. Judah has like a hundred-year warning, essentially, that what happened in the north is going to come down here and happen in the south, but it's not going to be by the hand of the Assyrians. They're going to come down here all right, but that's not going to be the one that judges you. Oh, your judgment's going to be much worse. He doesn't say that exactly. That's Habakkuk, but we'll get there. Um, so, that's going to happen, all right? But despite the headlong plunge of Judah into disaster in the footsteps of Israel, they're following right along with their northern kinsmen, someday God says that He would remember His people for good. While many will be tempted to read this as a future end times event, it seems clear that this is referring to the overall ministry of the Messiah, both earthly, heavenly, and eternal. So let's, let's read this, and you'll see kind of how you naturally would maybe want to read this. So first, Micah 4, 1 to 8. And it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills." And peoples shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit every man under his vine and, and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant, the remnant, and those who are cast off, a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, you sh to you shall it come. The former dominion shall come, kingship from the daughter of Jerusalem. All right. So just keep in mind, when you read the prophets, 
This is part of where we get really confused because every passage in the prophets that looks forward, we immediately jump to Revelation. All right, and I'm, t- I'm discouraging you from doing that, at least initially. There are parts of this that definitely, they have that kind of look to them, that, and we should look that way. But first, stop at the cross, would you? All right, would you just make a, just make a pit stop there and stay a while, all right? Because what you'll see is that this has actually begun. In the prophets, when they're looking down the road to the Messiah's coming, we know now, this side of the cross, we look back at the cross and we go, well, He came the first time and took away the sins of His people and made a kingdom of priests in the church. That's what He did. He established that. It's a kingdom. Peter tells us that. You're a kingdom of priests. All right? So then, but, but we also know that he left. And then he's not coming back at least for 2,000 years post-cross. Okay? Now, it may, it may, he may come tomorrow. He may come tonight. I don't know. But it's been at least 2,000 years. It may be another 4,000 years from here. Okay? We hope not. We hope not. But it may be. So we see a great chasm between Jesus' first coming and his second. But the prophets don't really see that. The prophets are looking down the road at the Messiah's coming, and instead of seeing two comings, they see it really as one big kingdom being established. So they kind of talk about the Gospels and Revelation as if they're one thing. And in reality, they, they, they are. All right, and we don't, this is hard for us to wrap our minds around now, but I want you to just think about this for just a second. Jesus has established a kingdom. Yes? He's established a nation. No longer is there Jew and Gentile, Paul tells us in Ephesians 3. Now, one new man under Christ. It's one group of people. No more Jew and Gentile, it's all one. They're one people. He has established a nation. And where are they located? Everywhere, right? They're in Russia, they're in China, they're in Iran, they're in America, they're everywhere. His nation has no borders. It started in Jerusalem, and it reaches to the ends of the earth. So when we read Micah, if we immediately jump to Revelation, what we've missed, what he's saying is actually going to be established. First, what's going to be established is the Messiah is going to come and establish a people. And He's going to give them a new heart. And that new heart is going to lead them to acknowledge God and to worship Him and for Him to be their God and they to be His people. And they're going to beat their plowshares into pruning hooks. And they're going to live very much in a community of saints who are redeemed, who can obey God, who love God, and who want to worship Him. Which is exactly the opposite of what the people in Israel are at this moment that Micah is speaking to them. They were supposed to be his people, but they're not. They pursued idols. And he's saying what's going to happen is precisely the opposite of that. There are going to be a people. He's going to come and he's going to take his people and he's going to redeem them and they are going to beat their plowshares into pruning hooks. In other words, they're not going to be warmongers and they're not going to be... Uh, idolaters anymore. They're going to worship Him and they're going to teach others to worship Him. They're going to share the gospel, right? So if we make a pit stop at the cross first, we can see that, right? And then Micah 5, 2-4, but listen to this. This is how we even come to this and where the New Testament comes to this. 
Look at Micah 2, 5, 2 to 4. And you may recognize this. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, for you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel. So he's talking about this same time that he was talking about in chapter 4. Whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Who's he talking about there? Matthew tells us he's talking about Jesus. Matthew tells us, you remember from you, O Ephrathah, Bethlehem, a ruler shall come from you. When they hear Bethlehem, who are they thinking about in that context? They're thinking about great-great-granddaddy, David. But you, O Bethlehem, you're going to be prominent again. You're tiny, but you're going to raise up the king. And he's going to establish what I'm talking about here in, in 4, 1 to 8. Now, is that Christ's first coming or is it his second? Yes. It starts with his first coming. It is inaugurated now. So Micah 4, 1 to 8, you look at that, you read it, and you go, man, that's revelation. I can't wait till Jesus comes. Pause for a second. He's already established this. And you experience it or should experience it on a daily basis in a healthy church where, one, the gospel is preached, where, two, the people around you love you and care about you and encourage you and want to help you in righteousness. That's what we are. He has established that in the church. A nation of people. All right. Um, Throughout the book, there is a remnant that is referred to quite frequently denoting the people of God. But remember that it's irrespective of genetic connection to Abraham, but who belong to Abraham by faith and are gathered from among all the nations. So you see this in Micah 5. um, Let's see. Micah 2, verse 12. Um, I missed reading Micah 5, 7 to 15. Sorry about that. The remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples in the dew of the Lord. Anyway, it's good. You should read later. Um, Micah 2, 12. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather... Uh, those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted and the lame, I will make a remnant. Um, then the remnant, in 5, 7 to 8, then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man nor wait for the children of man. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among who? The nations. Another way of translating that is the Gentiles, the Goyim. Those are the pagans 
be among the nations, in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of a sheep, which, when it goes through, treads down and tears into pieces, and there is none to deliver. He's going to judge in addition to that. So he's going to tear down the ones who are not his people and bring up the ones who are. 7, 18 to 20. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity? So this is what we should expect of this time. Who is like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgressions for the remnant of his inheritance? Who does that sound like? That sounds like you. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. But you understand when he says that, we also understand the sins that he forgave and cast in the depths of the sea. We know that he can't just mean strictly Jacob, that he can't just mean strictly Abraham or just people that have genetic connection to that because the Gentiles have also been forgiven. That's how the New Testament apostles read this passage until Peter preaches to Cornelius' house and he goes, then to the Gentiles salvation has also come. He learns about it too. Questions? Timothy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so what's helpful, and Timothy kind of brings out, it, the judge justice is either based on the character of God or based on the character of man. And you can see that sometimes even in our culture if we're just applying this to a cultural moment. And, and I don't necessarily love like going to news events and going, there is a miscarriage of justice in particular because m- most of the time I don't know all the facts right? That's, that's the hardest part, right? Uh, so you get a, a shooting or you get a this or a that, and, and those, those are certainly emotional, and they're certainly sad, and they're, they're you know, even in the event that the person is uh, maybe deserved justice to be delivered with uh, immediacy and speed, maybe it is justice. It's still no less sad, right? And we can still be sad about it, but most of the time I don't like to apply that to a singular event because I don't necessarily know all the context that was happening there. I don't know 100% of the facts. And so, but what you can do, I feel like it's better, is if you just understand what the prophets are saying and what it applies to, what they're talking about is an injustice. And then you can look around the world around you and you can see where a person's property is being taken away unjustly and they're making money off of it. Which, I mean, is a law on the books, they can do that. 
Um, now, and so when you see a person's property being taken away and, and, and maybe perhaps they're not being fairly compensated for that property or something like that, you can say, hey, that's injustice, right? And we shouldn't stand for that. Uh, or where you see someone's life being taken away, where you see somebody's whatever being taken away under such circumstances, you have biblical warrant to say that is an injustice, and we should speak against that. Um, so it becomes, I'm not saying it's not fraught with controversy, and that it's not difficult, and that I'm not even saying that some pastors don't get it wrong sometimes, and apply the justice of God to improper situations. They do, we do, uh, and I'm sure I have, but you know, it, it, it's still, I think it's better to equip us with how do we understand the prophets first, and then apply that to the situations that we, we find on a daily basis, yeah. Yeah, you, you know what I mean. Uh, yeah, 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 that's right, yeah. It, there is, and, and, and it's just part of the, this is part of the, I think, the thing that's fraught with controversy in our culture is just that social media has a lot of message just spread. You know, I think C.S. Lewis said, a lie can travel around the earth before the truth can put its shoes on. Uh, and that's, that's the truth, right? I mean, it's like... It, it, you, all the lies get out there first. All the, the spin-up and the whatever gets out there first. And so many people are quick to take the prophets and go, this is just what's said in Amos. And, you know, and right there, and you're like, well, if you'd have waited a week, you would have learned all the facts, and you would have seen that, like, that's not actually what happened. You know? um, and so it, it's important for us to be prudent and patient and, and wise, but also really to study the Word itself. And these prophets, actually, the word that they're speaking about the justice of God being carried out, believe it or not, it, it, there are miscarriages of justice that happen all the time in our world. But we, we need a discerning eye to be able to apply those prophets correctly to those situations. And also to say what the Bible does say about that, you know, and, and not any more and not any less. Yeah, does that make sense? All right, any other questions? All right, let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your word and for what it does say to us. And I, I pray that through our understanding of the Old Testament that you would help us, even when we just read the Bible devotionally, that, that it would um, really mean something to us and hit home and that we would see what we have in Jesus. In his whole ministry, crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and his return, that we would see all of those things as being impactful for us today, that you have made a nation of people who come under the banner of Christ and who celebrate the kingdom that we really belong to, um, that we have citizenship in, and that our citizenship there is eternal, whereas our citizenship here is temporary. May we always keep that in our minds as we go about, and as we read the prophets, would you drive that home to us time and again? In Jesus' name, amen.